0: Work with me. Imagine tomorrow morning you meet a guy or a gal with an open checkbook. Do people still carry checkbooks? Well, let's just say this person does. And the person says to you, today is your lucky day. You can have anything you want. There's only one rule today. You can have anything you want and as much of it. Want a new car? Hey, pick it out. Just decide what you want. You want a lane, Range Rover? You want a Mercedes? You want a Ferrari? How about them all? Let's just go pick them out. Any colors you want, hey, I'll take care of it. It'll belong to you at the end of the day. Where would you like to live? Beverly Hills? Man, we see the... Homes of the rich and famous out in Beverly Hills. You like to have a Beverly Hills mansion? I mean, you can have it, uh, but Beverly Hills may not be your choice. How about Malibu? How about a, a beach home in Malibu? Or maybe you're, maybe you're more hostile. You might like a Manhattan home. Those things can get pricey real fast. Or maybe you're more exotic. Maybe you'd like to have a place out on the French Riviera. Hey, why don't you just get them all? Why don't you have all those places? Because, hey, you're going to have to have a jet plane. And you have to have your own private jet. What do you want? You want a Cessna? Do you? you, 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 you Any any brand that you want? I mean, you can you can have any jet that you want and a yacht. I mean, after all, you got to have something to do next summer. Again, only one rule: anything you want, it's yours. As much of it, just just tell me what you want. And before he or she rides off into the sunset, they write you a check for a billion dollars and hand you a stock portfolio. Nice day, right? Hey, you would burn up social media on that one. You're like, you won't believe what happened to me today. When I woke up this morning, I was wondering how I was going to pay my rent. But now look at all that I've got. I've got homes and cars and money and stock. I am set for life. But Tuesday is another day. You wake up and you're like, hey, I don't even need to go to work anymore. I'm just going to start checking out all my stuff and maybe get on Amazon and get some other stuff that I want. But you're feeling a little off. And you say, before I start the day, I think I'll swing by the doctor and just, ah, just maybe just have the doctor kind of look at, you know, look at my tongue and look in my ears and that kind of thing. But you notice the doctor keeps getting more and more worried as she examines you. And after a few minutes, she says, We're gonna to have to run some blood tests. And by late in the afternoon, the doctor sits down with you and says, I, I need to have a really serious talk with you. You have contracted a virus. There's no cure, it's fatal. And you need to talk to everybody that matters in your life because 24 hours from now, you're not going to be here. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. At that moment, how important are your cars going to be? Are you going to talk to anybody about your Ferrari? I mean, how important is your beach home in Malibu Malibu, going to be? Would you even care if on Wednesday the stock market went up or down? At that moment, your thought would not be, what do I own, but where am I going from here? Strange, isn't it? how our lives get absorbed in the pursuit of things. It's in my life. It's in your life. I mean, for, and I know people watch this ministry from all over the world, and I don't know exactly what goes on in your cultures, but here in the United States, Americans are really into stuff. I mean, we're very much into stuff. I mean, right now there's a, there's a trend in minimalism, and a lot of that is because we Americans just have stuff coming out of our ears. But even though we're in the minimal, minimalism phase... Now, we still continue to get more and more stuff. Well, the reason why we do that is we get lulled into a false sense of security. If someone were to come to you today and say, will you die someday? You would say, yes, I will die someday. But really, we're not thinking seriously about it. We're just checking an intellectual box. Because deep down inside, we have a way of living like we're always going to be here. And that's why we spend too much time looking around instead of looking ahead. But someday, and it's already happened for some of you, but someday in our lives, we're going to have a wake-up call. And it's going to be a scare. It may be a health scare. It may be the death of a close friend that just, out of nowhere, they go into eternity. I mean, it could be all kinds of things, but something's going to happen in our lives when there is going to be a wake-up call, and we're going to realize the truth of this whole thing. There are a couple of verses in the Bible, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, that sort of line out for us just how long our lives really are. In the book of Psalms, in Psalm 39.5, the psalmist said, God, you have made my life as long as the width of my hand. I thought about this verse the other day because if you're into NFL football, you know that the event that's just happened is this event where they test athletes in various intellectual and physical ways, football ways, to see if if they're draftable and how high they might be drafted. It's called the NFL Combine. Well, for quarterbacks, there is a test in which they actually measure the distance between the tip of their thumb and the tip of their little finger. And because I guess teams want to know how well a quarterback can grip the football. And, and I thought about this first when I read something on that the other day, David said, that's how long you've made my life. You know, we, we want to think that our life is like miles long, but David said, it's just the width of my hand. And I know New Spring can be a very young church and many of you are young. If you're 20 years old, it feels like it's miles long, but talk to a 60 year old here and you know a 60-year-old will say what Billy Graham used to say all the time? People would ask Billy Graham late in his ministry, what is the one thing that has surprised you about life? And every time Billy would say the same thing, it's how short it is. He says, God's just like that. Well, in the book of James, James gets even more specific. In the New Testament, he said, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. I live in South Andover in a neighborhood, but Right behind me is just country, and there's a tree line, and and the fog can come in early in the mornings, and it'll be absolutely gray. I can't even see the trees behind my house. And I think to myself, today is going to be a gray, cloudy day. I mean, it's like this this blanket has settled over my neighborhood. But by 10 o'clock in the morning, the sun is out, and there's no sign at all of the fog. And James said, that's what life is like. You know, the sun comes out, and it's gone. He said, it's like the morning fog. It's here a little while, and then it's over. Well, whenever you and I have that face-to-face moment with reality, we will suddenly be in a race, like I described in my story, to reprioritize our lives. Hey, 10 years ago, I went through a difficult time. I've shared some of this with you. I thought I was dying. I had some physical conditions, and nobody could diagnose them, and I was getting worse and worse and worse, and I actually thought I was dying. And one of the things that I found interesting during that time, as I was able to look back on it, is a lot of stuff that was important to me before was suddenly completely unimportant. Hey, I have lived and died, mostly died, with the Dallas Cowboys. I can't help myself. And for all of you, you know, all of you Chief fans who are really enjoying this year, just have pity on me. I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I can't help myself. If there's a star on the hat, I will watch. I've watched just about every Dallas Cowboy game since 1966. But I noticed that 10 years ago when I was dying, the Cowboys could be on the stream, didn't even watch the game. I didn't care whether they won or lost because, see, I was in a race to reprioritize my life. I didn't care what I drove. I didn't care really what I had to eat because life was changing for me. At least I thought so. Before that, years ago, back when we used to read real newspapers with real paper, I was reading the Wichita Eagle one day and I opened up the obituary section and I saw that there was an obituary that said that Pastor Mark Hoover had died and there was going to be a funeral. Kind of freaked me out. I I was in my car when I read that. I looked in the mirror to make sure I was still alive. (laughs) Fortunately, it was another pastor. I mean, not not fortunate for him, but fortunate for me. But, you know, I I stared at that obituary for a little while and I thought, Sunday, it is going to be me. There will be an obituary, it won't be in a paper newspaper, but it will be online. There will be an article, This is Pastor Mark Hoover, longtime Kansas pastor, pastor of New Spring Church, died. Funeral is going to be at such and such time. And I thought to myself as I read that obituary, am I, am I spending my life the way I would want to spend it if my name was in the obituary section next week? And it could be. You are spending your life, you know that, don't you? You are spending it. We think we're living our lives, but we're actually investing it. Our series is called Red Letters, the Questions. Nine years ago, I preached a series called Red Letters, and we looked at eight statements of Jesus. And we had a wonderful experience nine years ago, but this has been on my mind and heart for a long time. Because so much of what Jesus had to say was in the form of questions, and there's a reason for that, that you and I really need to attach to today. The Christian life is, is not a life of necessarily doing, it's a life of responding, it's a life of answering questions. So time after time, Jesus framed his ministry in questions that would summon a response from you and me. There is no, there is no passive reaction to Jesus Christ. In fact, to be passive about Jesus is to tell him no. No. So now, Jesus asked us questions, and I'm going to talk about where it all starts today, but next week, we're going to deal with the question, where are your accusers? And one of the most beautiful messages I'll ever have the privilege of bringing to you. The week after that, how do you see the speck in your friend's eye, but not the log in yours? Week four, do you believe? Week five, do you know what I've done for you? And on Easter, we're going to ask the question that Jesus asked, weren't these things meant to be? It's going to be great, and I can't wait to bring these messages to you. But as I said a moment ago, we're starting where Jesus starts. We're going to ask the the quintessential question of life, the the very fundamental question that we all have to wrestle with. Hey, you guys are the smartest people I know. Have you noticed how brilliant people find a way to ignore the obvious question? I mean, we even have an expression about that. We talk about the elephant in the phone booth. Some of you work in a place with highly educated people that will avoid the essential question. I I learned this, well, early in my life, but I really learned it especially when I was like in my early 30s, and I was asked to sit on the board of directors for a Christian college. And I knew the other board members. They were all guys in their 50s. They were all well-known leaders. And I made myself a promise as I drove to the campus that day in my 87 Volvo. I said, Mark, swear to yourself that you will not open your mouth and say a word and show what an idiot you are. I promised myself, I said, I will not talk. These other board members have been on the board for a long time. President was gonna address the board in that first day of meetings. And I said, promise yourself, you would just sit there and listen and learn. So I did. And I listened to the president as he talked about these bold initiatives that we needed to engage in. And they all cost a lot of money. He talked about expanding the campus. And, and building. And I thought, wow, that sounds exciting. And all the guys were excited. They were, they were all talking about it. But later that day, the lead accountant of our accounting firm for that particular school that ran our annual audit put before us a set of financials. Now I'm not a brilliant man, but I can read financials. And I looked at these financials that showed patterns over a few years. And it looked to me every year, we were in serious deficit spending that was getting worse and worse and worse. And I thought to myself, how can we talk, be talking about all these bold initiatives? And I broke my promise, and I said, gentlemen, I'm the youngest man here, but I have to tell you, when I look at these financials, it looks like we're an F-16 flying into the ground in full throttle. And I said, I think we need to look at balancing the budget. You know what the ironic thing was? The rest of that three-day meeting was spent on talking about how to balance the budget. Our next three years of meetings were talking about how to balance the budget. Ultimately, we did, and the college is still in existence. But it hit me that these guys would sit around and talk about pie-in-the-sky stuff and ignore the obvious. You know what I've discovered? As I meet some of the most brilliant people here in America, at least, is that a lot of times Americans will talk about all kinds of crazy, ethereal stuff, and they'll ignore the obvious thing. Jesus doesn't give us that permission. Because right out of the box, he asks you and me the question where it all starts. And it goes like this. What do you benefit from? If you gain the whole world, but lose your soul. And then he tags on to that. Is anything worth your soul? Well, facts are our friends. So let's just look at Jesus' statement because certain facts are inherent from the question that he asks. Here is the first one. You have a soul. Everybody listening to me, no matter what your age, no matter what your life situation, you have a soul. And your soul is the most priceless possession you have you have a soul. Well, what is the soul? (laughs) That's interesting. Great minds throughout the years, especially if you studied philosophy, you know that great minds have known that we had a soul, but they all struggled to define it. Aristotle, brilliant man, but he couldn't quite nail it down. Plato, he said, cognitively, we have two parts. We have the rational cognition and perception. He saw the soul as like the driver that drove those two horses. That's not particularly helpful. And then Freud came along and talked about the id and the ego and super ego, but it all comes up short because here's what I believe. I believe that the soul is as mysterious as the God who made it. And that's why we have a hard time nailing it down. I also believe the soul is God's greatest creation. Our God is creator God and he's created so many extraordinary things, but the soul is his greatest and we read in Genesis chapter 2 how God did it. He took the first, well, when he made the first human being, he made a mud sculpture. And then this, the Bible says God breathed into his nostrils the spirit or the breath which clearly emanated from God. And the Bible says man became a living being. Uh, Some translations will use the word man became a living soul. Hebrew word is nefesh. Greek language came along and translated into suki from which we get our word psyche. So God breathed into a mud sculpture, and man became a living soul. Now, I'm not a brilliant man. I'm certainly not as brilliant as Plato, Aristotle, or any of of these other greats. But I'm going to do my best to define for you what your soul is. First of all, let's start with this. It is the non-material essence of you. I can say that I see you today, but I don't see you. I see the bodies that you live in. I can't see your love. I can't see your passion. I can't see your fear. I can't see... The part of you that makes decisions, that part of you is not visible to me until you express it some way materially. But your soul is your identity. You know, it's strange, isn't it? We in the Western world take so much identity from our bodies, and yet in reality, your body is not your identity. Your true identity is your soul. In fact, death occurs when your soul leaves your body. It's not, that, it's not that your soul has reached the cosmic stop sign and it's, there's the cessation of existence. It's just that this body, in some fashion, wears out and the soul leaves it, and we call that death. Ergo, your soul is your very life. The great intellectual C.S. Lewis said, You don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. One more thing we learn from Jesus that the soul is eternal. <laughs> I, I'm going to say something really silly, so just please forgive me before I say it. When I tried to think about defining the soul for you, I needed a word that isn't a word. So I know before I say this, this is not a word. Your soul is the you-ness. Why are you N-E-S-S? Not a word, I know. Your soul is the you of you. Stop for a moment and meditate briefly on your soul. That part of you that is alert, that part of you, you can say, Mark, the part of me that hears is my ear. No, the ear is just the material part of you that the soul uses to hear. Meditate on the non-material part of you, the part of you that's alert, that's cognitive, that's processing this message. That part of you is never going to die. It's never going to fade to black. It's never going to disappear. That part of you is going to keep going even after your body is in a casket somewhere, and they have your funeral, and then they go back home and eat potato salad. I mean, when that happens, the part of you that is you right now is going to keep right on living. It is eternal. It is not going to stop. Now, according to Jesus, here's fact number two. That part of you, well, that, that part that is you, can be lost. Strange. Jesus didn't use the verb destroyed. He didn't say, What is does a person profited if they destroy their soul He said, what does a a person profit if they gain the world and lose their soul? How do you lose your soul? How do you lose anything? I have ADD. In fact, I've had a psychiatrist tell me, you may be the most ADD human being I've ever met. And his practice is limited to ADD personnel. So he just said, you're probably the most ADD person I've ever met in my life. He smiled at my wife, Mary Alice, when he said that. So I, I lose stuff a lot. I mean, I, I lose my keys. I lose my glasses. I lose all kind of stuff. How do I lose it? I've already told you the answer. I don't pay attention. How do you lose your soul? You lose your soul by not paying attention. It's like what I talked about a few moments ago. It's the elephant in the phone booth. It's the biggest part of us, and yet most Americans don't even think about their soul health. We, we lose our souls because we don't pay attention And by the way, it's not something God does to us. I mean, Jesus asked the question, what do you benefit if you gain the world, but you lose your own own soul? Well, what would it look like if we lost our souls? I'm going to give you two stories that Jesus told. The first one comes from Luke chapter 12, and you're going to find something in here. And so let me just deal with this before we get into these two stories. Both stories, Jesus is going to talk about a rich man losing his soul. Because Jesus is going to make the point several times that it is not easy for a rich person to get into heaven. Now, he'll say it's not impossible, but he'll say that it's not easy. And it's not like God is like, okay, I have one bar here for poor people and I have one bar here for rich people. It's just that rich people are less inclined to pay attention to their souls because they tend to be more busy acquiring stuff, but not always. We study the Bible and find rich people who were rich toward God, and we find poor people who were into acquisition. So Jesus is just going to say it's more difficult for a rich person to go to heaven. Now, here's the deal. The moment I say that, a whole bunch of us (sighs) free the sigh of relief because it's like, I'm not rich. I don't have to worry about that. I'm struggling to pay my bills. But before you get too comfortable in those wonderful new spring seats, let me tell you about something. I was watching, I, was, I just finished my work, and it was late at night, and I was just kind of wa- wanting to watch something mindless on television and just kind of let me calm down. And I got into that band of channels that nobody watches. And I saw a program called Selling Jets. And I thought, selling jets, what would that be like? Well, it's like rich people who go in to buy private jets, like you and I go in to buy a car, And so they're selling used and new jets, and it's like talking to different customers. And and, and so I kind of got interested in it for a few moments, but especially in this one particular broadcast, because there was this uber, uber, uber rich family that were in the process of buying a private jet for their college-age daughter. I think they already had a couple of private jets in the family, but after all, she needed to get from home to college, and dad told her she could shop for the jet herself. Well, there were two jets that she was looking at. One had some years on it, technology wasn't quite as fresh as it is today, but it was like $2 million. And the other jet was $6 million, and then a little bit more updated technology. And so the girl was demanding that she get the $6 million jet. And the dad was saying, no, this is your, <laughs> this is your first jet. <laughs> How many of you have well passed your first jet? This is your first jet. That $2 million jet is adequate. And she freaked out. She was pouting and saying to her dad, how dare you pass off this $2 million jet on me when you have a nicer jet? And then she said something that really got my attention. She said, that $2 million jet doesn't have wireless internet And she said, I need the $6 million jet because I have to do my homework. How many of you in college, grad school, law school, med school, how many of you don't have a private jet, but somehow you still manage to do your homework? I'll go to a freakier place. I mean, some of you are like over 40. How many of you were able to like go through college, grad school, med school, law school. You didn't even have the internet. I managed to get my homework done. Now, I saw that and I said, that is the stupidest thing I have ever seen in my life. And that fast, the Holy Spirit said, really? How do you think you look to poor people in Africa or Asia When you have to have certain surfaces on your cabinets, and you have to have certain surfaces on your floor, and I can't live with that paint color. And you know what? That driver I have in my golf bag that was brand new a couple years ago, I just saw on television that if I would spend $400, I could get a driver that would hit the ball a lot straighter, which it won't do, but they're selling me a golf and but I've got to have it. And God said, Mark, don't you understand? You look exactly like that girl. So before we get too full of ourselves and say we're not rich, we have to understand we're way richer than the rest of the world. So let's all take a deep breath and embrace the reality that when Jesus talks about rich men, he was talking about us. So let's look at this first story. He said the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. In other words, he grew a lot of crops. And he asked himself the question, what shall I do? I have no room to store my crops. So he said, I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store My goods, my crops, and my goods. And then then Jesus kind of like teaches this story in an emphasis kind of manner. Because the man goes on to say, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods. You have acquired much of this world. You have many goods laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, full, full. Why would God call a person a fool? Americans especially? Let's listen. God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will all those things be that you have acquired? Hmm. And that's a story from the Bible, but let me just share a story from my past. When, when you serve a church for almost 35 years, you meet a lot of people and you hear a lot of stories This one occurred when I was still in my late 20s. We were located on the south side of town. In those days, our church was much smaller. There were only probably about 350 people who attended. So in the night services, it would be kind of intimate. And so one of the things I would often do, especially on our Wednesday night services, is I would say, if you have a prayer request, just raise your hand if you feel comfortable sharing it. And so people would do that for a little while, and the whole church would pray for those needs. And I remember we had one woman in our church who was probably about 60 years old, and she was deeply concerned about her sister and brother-in-law. And time after time, she would stand up in a prayer meeting, and she would say, would you pray for my sister and brother-in-law? They're not interested in God at all, and they're not interested in church, and I would love to see God work in their lives. And so she was so burdened about it, I actually went to see this couple and talked to them and asked them about their interest in spiritual things. It was like glazed over. They were sort of like pleasant to me, but it was like, how quickly can we get you out of our house? So you can imagine how excited I was when one day I get a phone call from the man, and he says, we would like to have you come to our home and talk to us because we have a question about God. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. They're finally getting it. And when you're 28, 29 years old, you're very optimistic. So I drove to their house. It was very modest, I should tell you. I mean, it was nothing that would have stood a small house. But I noticed that day when I drove up, they had a massive motorhome in the driveway. Well, when I sat down in their home, it was real clear. They were not in a good mood. They were angry. I mean, they almost glared at me. And here was the question that the man posed to me. He said, all our adult lives, my wife and I worked for one of the aircraft companies here in Wichita. And he said we were frugal with our money, and we saved every penny because our dream was to retire in our late 50s and buy a motorhome and spend the rest of our life touring the world. And he said we just retired a month or so ago, and just a couple of weeks ago, we bought this massive, magnificent motorhome that I saw. And he said, my wife notices she'd been feeling poorly for a little while. And he said, we took her to the doctor and they ran a battery of tests. And it's now been shown that my wife here has stage four terminal cancer and maybe has a few weeks or a month or so to live. And he looked at me and he glared and he said, I demand of you to answer for me why God would do that to me. Well, it's real clear to me, he really would like to have God in his living room and demand an answer. I was a very poor substitute, but I was the closest thing he could get to. I'd, now, okay, work with me for a second. What do you want to say to him? I mean, if you were just to tell him the complete unvarnished truth, it would go something like this. God didn't do this to you. This was your plan. This was not God's plan for your life. You were never interested in God's plan for your life. You had a plan for your life, and you wanted God to stamp it like you would get somebody to stamp a parking receipt. But I can't say that. His wife's dying with cancer. And it wouldn't have helped anyway. So I just pleaded with them both to look at where they were right then. And I said, why not take the rest of your life and invest it in God because it'll pay off eternally. Went back to being glazed over. It was just a couple of weeks or so when I got a phone call from St. Joseph Hospital, which was real close to our campus then. Now, in those days, I guess they still are to some degree, in those days, there would be something called quiet rooms. And oftentimes, hospitals would have quiet rooms down the hall from emergency, the emergency room. And by and large, those quiet rooms were used to, to seclude families who were going to hear some bad news. And so as a pastor, I was familiar with going up to the hospital and going to the quiet room. And sometimes the doctors would call me on the phone and say, we're not going to tell them until you get here and then you can tell them. And I didn't always love that, but that's what I'm called to do, and so I would often do that. I would meet the families in the quiet room, and I would have to break some bad news to them. So this is what the doctor is asking me to do. He said, I'm up here at the hospital with Mrs. So-and-so, and I need you to come and tell them what's happened. Well, the first thing that was in my mind was, this is a mistake. This doctor's made, he's made an error. Because he really means Mrs. So-and-so has died. The husband is there, and he's waiting for me to tell the husband that she has passed. So I I jump in my car, and there's only about a five-minute drive to St. Joseph, to the emergency room. I walk into the emergency room, and I'm thinking to myself this, he, he knew she was going to die, I mean, so it's not going to be a real shock, so, but I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to try to comfort, but I, I thought, that doctor got him backwards, he, he wasn't up there at the hospital with Mrs. So-and-so, he was up there with Mr. So-and-so, and Mrs. So-and-so has died, and so I walked into the room, and you can imagine my utter shock when I walked in, and it was her, the man who was 58 years old, I believe, without a health problem in the world, had gotten on his treadmill that morning and had a massive heart attack and died. Just a few weeks later, I had her funeral. And I thought, that is what it means to lose your soul. I mean, not that these were bad people. I mean, they were hardworking people. It was just that they were like, our whole life is going to be to acquire. Isn't it like the story Jesus told? And yet the Lord came and said, it's time to receive your soul. Well, let's go a step further. What would it be like if a person did lose their soul? What would happen to the soul? Because I think we understand from Jesus' comment, if a person loses the soul, the soul is not going to go to be with God. It's not going to heaven. Something else has to happen. Well, Jesus, four chapters later from the story he just told, tells another story about another rich man. He said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen who lived each day in lush luxury. Actual Greek word means he lived deliciously. Well, good morning, America. How are you? That is us. We dress in way nice, classical. We can dress in any clothes we want to dress because clothing is inexpensive today. And eating? My goodness, we eat the best. We eat better Chinese food than Chinese. We eat better Mexican food than the people in Mexico. I mean, we, we have the very best of life here. So again, Jesus is talking about us. He said, there was a rich man who lived deliciously every day. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for the scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham, which is an expression meaning paradise or heaven. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. Now, If you just put a period there, it sounds like, okay, everything just faded to black. But look at Jesus going on. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing so now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And beside that, there is a great chasm separating us, and no one can get from here to you, and nobody can get from where you are to where I am. Now, I don't know what hell is like. Which, by the way, just in case anyone thinks this is some wild-eyed prophet, I need to let you know that Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else. So for anyone to say, I don't know how Jesus, a loving Jesus could allow a person to go to hell well the bible talks about it and it's really important for us to remember that god doesn't want anybody to be in hell one of my favorite preachers in the united states was a great pastor who pastored in la in the watts area his name was evie hill evie preached all over the world by the way he was a texan (laughs) let's throw that in and, and Evie called his wife baby. So he would oftentimes relate conversations he had with his wife. And so he was traveling, preaching somewhere. And he said, His wife called him and said, uh, What'd you preach on tonight? He said, You can go to hell. She said, Excuse me. He said, No, no. He said, The title of my sermon was You Can Go to Hell. He said, I told him, You can go to hell, but you shouldn't go because you haven't been invited and nobody should go where they haven't been invited to go. And Evie was right. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. But evidently, people choose. And I don't know exactly what it's like. I do know several things from Jesus' statement. It's total separation from God. It's total separation from love. It's total separation from another chance. And there's enough in Jesus' comments that makes me think that hell is a really bad place. And so Jesus is asking the question for you and me today, what does it matter if you get the whole world? Nobody's ever going to do that. But Jesus asked a question. He said, what what would it matter if you had every share of stock, every piece of currency, if you owned every inch of land? What would it matter if you could somehow acquire it all and you lost your soul? And then he goes on to ask another question that I haven't shown you yet. Right after that, he said, or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, I preached this wrong for 35 years because I just didn't pay attention to the verse. Because a lot of times, I was preaching it as if Jesus were asking, what would a person take for his soul? In other words, Satan offers us things and we trade our soul for sex or we trade our soul for money or we trade our soul for this or that religion. That's not what Jesus asked. His presumption is the soul has already been lost. Because in the process of trying to acquire all this pile of stuff, we lost our soul because we weren't paying attention. And Jesus says, now that you've lost your soul and you have this big, bunch of stuff, what exactly are you going to reach into from this cadre of stuff? What are you going to reach into and pull out in order to buy your soul back? And Jesus said, if you gained everything in the world, you couldn't buy your soul back because your soul is that valuable. So somebody could be here today and you say, Mark, how do I know I haven't already lost my soul? Well, I don't think that's the question. The question is, even though you and I don't know what we can reach into in order to buy our souls back, we know that somebody loved us enough to buy our souls, and he had something in his stack that would work, and that person was Jesus Christ. And he came and he ran the table for 33 years, and he hung on a Roman cross like you heard sung about today, and when the blood came out of his body, God said, I will accept that as a payment to buy your soul back. And that's why week after week I tell you that God has a deal on the table that's time sensitive. My time is gone today, but I owe you a statement. I travel the country, I speak to churches all over America, and something really troubles me. What really troubles me, is, as Americans especially, there has been a way that church attenders have figured out to live their lives actually acquiring stuff, but they spray a little Jesus on it, and it's as if somehow that's the Christian life and it's not. It's fraudulent. Let us be clear that Jesus has called us to make a choice, and his choice is this. You can either live your life pursuing stuff, or you can live your life protecting your soul by pursuing God. He's not saying that you should give up your stuff. He's just saying you're living for one thing or the other, and the choice has to be made, and nobody here, nobody here, nobody here, nobody in North Auditorium, nobody watching online, nobody watching on television, nobody should ever lose your soul because no matter how much you screwed up right now, an offer is on the table where Jesus has given his life to pay for your soul so that you would have it back for eternity. And by the grace of God, I plead with you today, pay enough attention to that part of you that is the you of you that will outlive your body. Pay enough attention today. Shake yourself if you have to shake yourself and say, I want to focus for a little while on my soul because a choice has to be made. And passivity is is not an option. On April 26, 1991, something happened that all of us Kansans were scared of. A lot of you were not born in 1991. Many of you have moved to Kansas since then, so you have to go back a little ways to remember this day. But it is one of the most famous days in the history of our city, and definitely in my hometown of Andover. Because an F5 tornado, the most powerful storm of all, a storm that is literally a vacuum that will just suck up everything on the ground, hit our area, and especially my hometown of Andover. When that storm went away, 21 people in our region died. 17 died in Andover, and most of the people who died in Andover died in a mobile home park on Andover Road. I drive by that area every day. I preached the funeral for the last man found. And I think a lot about the story. He was a resident in that trailer home, and I should say that in that trailer home there was there was a shelter, and everyone in that shelter survived. He actually made it into the shelter. And then he remembered that he had left his mobile home unlocked. And he left the shelter. And he went back to lock his mobile home, which nothing would be found of but sawdust. And as I say, I preach this funeral. Going back to lock his mobile home would have been a smart thing if it hadn't been for the tornado. Ladies and gentlemen, living the American dream would be a smart thing if it weren't for eternity. Jesus starts us here. What is a person profited if he or she gained the whole world and lose their soul? I want you to imagine that something is possible. I guess existentially it is possible. But just imagine if you would for a moment that you reached in and you took hold of your soul, the unis of you, that non-material part of you. Suppose you could pick up your soul today and deliver it somewhere. If you're like the average earth dweller, you would pick up your soul, and without realizing it perhaps, you would pick up your soul and you would set it down at the altar of this world and the stuff that you can get and just say, I am going to devote my soul to being, you know, having a lot of influence and people like me and having a lot of stuff and getting ahead. I'm going to lay my soul down at that altar. But imagine you did something different. Suppose you could reach in and take your soul today. And pick it up and hold it for a moment. That youness of you. And you would say, this world is too temporary and too scary. Jesus, I can't handle this. This is too big. Could I, could I leave my soul with you for you to take care of? which is exactly what Paul the apostle said as he wrote to young Timothy. He said, I know whom I believe, and I'm persuaded that he's able to hold on to what I've trusted him with. This is not as far-fetched as it might sound. I'm challenging you today, whether you are 15 or 95, to pick up your soul and hand it to Jesus and say, Jesus, I am giving my soul to you. I'm trusting you with it. Because you bought it. You paid the price for it. And now I'm an eternal being, and I'm not going to trust my soul to this world. I'm going to trust it to you. Like I do every weekend, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, but maybe for the first time it's made more sense than it ever has before because God is like talking to you, and his talking to you is way more important than mine. But if you're here today and you just say, Mark, I want to do that. I want to reach and take the the meanness of me, and I want to give it to Jesus. And I'm going to turn my back on the way of life that I've lived up till this moment. But by the grace of God, I want to follow Jesus and live an eternal kind of life. And God's power that we've been talking about will come into your life. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I'll lead it slowly so you can decide if you want to say these things to God. Ready? Dear God, I am a sinner. I'm broken and I can't fix myself. But I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died to pay for my soul. Today, I pick up me and I hand it to you. I hand my soul to you to trust for safekeeping. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for adopting me. Help me to follow you in Jesus' name. Well, if you just prayed that prayer with me, I have a gift that I've put together for you. It's a gift box. will not cost you anything. There's a Bible in here just like I preach from. I've, I've written a little book. Hundreds of thousands of people have read this book. It's just a way of saying these are how to walk your first steps following Jesus. Also some cool stuff. You can go to any info center all around the campus, and all you have to say is I pray with Mark, and they won't hassle you. They just want to give you this gift to help you. God bless you. Next week, we'll look at question two. See you then.